Hi everyone, I'm happy to be with you today. I'll tell you, I have no idea what's going to happen with the time I'm with you all. I don't know how long I'll be with you. I don't know whether you'll enjoy my time here, or even if you're going to be particularly fond of me. What I can be certain about is that God will bless me through you, that he will bless you through me, and that through us, all the world will be blessed. We will be successful in furthering God's kingdom. And you might be wondering how I can be sure of that in my first week here, but hopefully this sermon series, which looks like it'll go through August, will show why I'm so confident that even if in the end it looks like this whole thing went terribly, that God will have blessed the world through our church. In this sermon series, we're going to try to tell the gospel story in 12 weeks. Obviously, you could tell the story a little more quickly than that, but I hope that if we can get a hold of the whole story from beginning to end, we're going to have a better understanding of what our role is in that story and how it's so obvious that we are going to succeed when we work together for God's kingdom. We're going to go a little deeper than Jesus came so you can go to heaven when you die and see how the whole Bible fits together to tell the story about how God has acted in history and is acting right now to rescue the world from sin and death. I would love to get into the small details of each passage, but I think for our purposes, we'd be better served talking on broader terms about where each passage fits within this rescue story and what each passage contributes to it. In other words, we probably won't be speaking much Hebrew by the end of this, but hopefully we'll be speaking a bit of gospelese or gospelish or something like that. And I think the best place to start that story is right here in Genesis 12. First, let's talk a little bit about the problem that this passage was meant to solve. If you're reading Genesis 3 about when Adam and Eve first sinned, you might think that the consequences wouldn't have been all that severe. I mean, all they did was eat a fruit that they weren't supposed to. But this actually introduces us to what the Bible thinks about sin. We normally think about our actions as if they have very clear consequences. Like, if I eat that sandwich, I will feel less hungry. Or, if I steal that money, I will get away with it and get the money, and maybe the person who had the money will be sad. But the Bible sees that our sins don't actually affect us or what's immediately around us, but actually contributes to destroying the world entirely. When God made the world, it was a step-by-step orderly process. He shaped it from something that was chaotic, formless, and void, and made it into a functioning world with plants and animals and humans. In other words, he made order out of chaos. What sin does is it drives a wedge between people and God, and because of that, it contributes to, to the kind of chaos which existed before God made the world. When you sin, you are literally unmaking the world. For that reason, it makes sense that God would say, if you sin by eating that fruit, you will surely die, or that the wages of sin are death. Because death is where your body no longer functions. The order that made it work no longer exists, and instead your flesh decays. Your body is unmade. For the Bible, sin is what unmates the world, and death is the greatest expression of that. Really, it's more like, if I steal that money, the traded order of the universe will be violated, I will alienate myself from God, and contribute to the slow decay of the world away from God's intention. This might sound melodramatic, that tiny sins like eating fruit unmates the world, but just take a look at the world around you right now, and you will see poverty, disease, corruption, and it takes the work of all of us just to keep the world from falling apart. All the evil and sadness in this world is not a part of God's traded intention. Sin is like a fire that destroys the good world that God made, and the more it destroys, the more fuel there is for the fire, until none of us really have our hands clean from it. The blessing of the world which God gave us can slowly spiral into cursing and suffering. Sin leads to exile from God's presence, which leads to the world falling apart. 
Just like with our bodies, it is only with some amount of the presence of God that anything actually functions, because we need the order with which God created the world, or we will be slowly unmade. This idea of how sin infects the world is pretty consistent with what we see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin, then Cain kills Abel, the world gets so bad that God sends a flood to destroy it, and even God's chosen person gets drunk and sins. The earth is spiraling out of control and slowly being unmade because of sin. Instead of a world full of blessing, it becomes one full of curses. In chapter 3, God cursed the serpent, the man and the woman. In chapter 4, God cursed Cain. In chapter 6, God cursed the world with a flood. In chapter 9, Noah cursed Canaan. What do we do with a world that is falling apart and becoming more and more cursed? In chapter 11, all of humanity comes together and tries to solve this problem. They all come to Babel, and a number of people say that they want to make a name for themselves so they aren't scattered over the whole earth. In other words, they knew that the world was being unmade and falling into chaos, scattering them everywhere, and they needed to do something about it. What they do is they build a tower that goes into the heavens where God is. In other words, they recognized that they needed God in order to keep the chaos at bay, so they decided to bring him down to them. Instead, God scrambles their languages that they can't build the tower. In other words, they knew the right problem, which was that God was gone and was leading the world to be slowly unmade. But their solution was to bring God down to meet them. What God does instead is he brings himself to the world on his own terms, and he begins in our passage by making a covenant with Abraham. Immediately once you get to this passage with Abraham, you see that this pattern has completely shifted. Now, instead of curse after curse after curse, you see the word blessing being used five times in the first four verses. God promises to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation, and that whoever blesses him, he will bless, and whoever curses him, he will curse. Believe it or not, this deal that God made with Abraham was actually the first step in this plan to unite the world to himself. And the way he did it was by making a deal with a single person. Think about the terms of the deal that God makes here. There is only one condition, which is that Abraham leave and go to the land which God gave him. But after that, there is literally nothing that is suspected of him. And all that's left for it is for God to bless him, his descendants, and the rest of the world. Every step along the way was simply an, the inevitable byproduct of God's faithful love to Israel and ultimately to the church. God kept his end of the deal through 19 centuries of Israel failing to bless the world as they ought to have. And in the end, he became a person and did it for them. The way that God begins to hold up his deal is obvious as you read the rest of Genesis. Abraham three times does this weird thing where he tries to pass off his wife as his sister, and all three times it immediately backfires, and he almost loses her to the king's harem. But then all three times, somehow Abraham gets out of there with a ton of money. Sounds like some miraculous blessing to me. Then Jacob is a bit of a liar and dupes his brother out of his inheritance, but when they meet again, Esau is just kind of fine with it which is pretty miraculous. Or Joseph is dropped in a well by his brothers, but this just happens to mean that Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt and saves them all from a famine. This ends up being true all throughout the Bible, that God blesses his people miraculously and extravagantly, and things just kind of happen to work out for them, even though they aren't really the best people. Nothing is certain but death, taxes, and that God blesses his covenant people by some crazy coincidences despite their failures. Not quite as snappy. (laughs) But that's the very beginning of what makes it clear that God takes his promise to bless the world and remake it seriously. 
Because God made this promise, and because he takes his promise seriously, the world began to move inevitably towards the cross and then onward to the new creation. On the cross, God took on the fullness of the chaos, evil, destruction, and suffering of the world, which was so thoroughly broken by sin. I mean, what could have been a better expression of humanity's failures than to nail the Son of God to the cross? But when Christ was raised, his body was the first part of God's new creation. It was unmarred by anything less than God's perfect intention. And Paul says that, uh, that us Christians have already tasted this new creation. Sin began to unmake the world, but God through the gospel is remaking it. And it all started with this miraculous action to create the new family of God. I hope that you can see now that this covenant which God gave to Abraham in our passage is the only hope for this world. The people at Babel recognize something that we so often don't, which is that sin has made it so that the world without God will do nothing but slowly slide into chaos. They knew that the, they needed the presence of God, or else they would be scattered across the whole earth. Their only failure was that they didn't recognize that if God was to be present, it wouldn't be because they built a tower big enough that they can go and see God whenever they want. It would be because God miraculously comes down to meet us. It would be on God's own terms. We should recognize that that's true for us in the church today. Nothing good can come of us forgetting God and trying to do things through our own talents. If this church manages to be successful in whatever way we measure it, it will have to be because God has come and is present with us right now. Every small step away from sin and death and towards God's good intention for the world is nothing short of a miraculous work of God. That goes for things all the way from cleaning out the office this past week to seeing people converted and lives changed. Every good thing we do is nothing short of the miracle of the presence of God, because without God there can only be chaos. The exciting thing is that God does not merely snap his fingers and fix the whole world. Instead, he calls Abraham to leave his homeland. And you can see that he's really emphasizing how hard that is. He doesn't say, leave and go to the land I gave you, but says, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's household. God is emphasizing the sacrifice that Abraham would have to make in order to be faithful to him. But Abraham obe obeys anyway. There's this major reversal of what happened in the garden. Adam sinned by taking the fruit that wasn't meant for him, and that led to chaos for the whole world. But now Abraham obeys by leaving his homeland, and that caused the whole world to start to come back to the order that God intended for it. We're also called to make similar steps of obedience, and we know that each one of them is contributing to God's plan to rescue the whole world. And I don't know about you, but the idea that God is letting us join in his plan to rescue the world is pretty cool. Just like Abraham, we're completely blind to the future, which might be scary, but we know that whatever happens, it'll be part of God remaking the world. So really, all that's left is a sense of adventure. The victory's already won. We just get to be part of it and get to see how, in the end how it happens. Nobody know, but God knows the particulars, but it's clear that my time here, along with our whole lives, will be a tiny minuscule detail in the beautiful tapestry of God's perfect will and loyal covenant love. Like Abraham, we stand at the foggy border of a completely new life. We are leaving our comfortable position in search of what God calls us to. We are completely blind to the future, and we need, we need God to be our vision. There's no chance that we can be certain how even the near future is going to play out, which is scary, but it's also exciting. There's an adventure that awaits us. And that's especially true if we know that whatever happens, God will hold to his promises. Through him, we know that I will bless you and you will bless me. And through him, we'll bless the whole world.